This episode is sponsored by Macmillan Audio. This week, I'm excited to offer a sneak peek at one of the most powerful, enthralling audiobooks I've listened to recently, One Blood by Deneen Milner, narrated by Tina Lifford, Bonnie Turpin, and Jonice Abbott-Pratt. Soon as Mama gave her a spoonful of corn pone and a scoop of lima beans, she swallowed them practically whole and got on down the road like she had some kind of pressing appointment to tend to. Shame gives feet wings. Miss Arling was intimate with Grace's struggle. Mr. Harwitz followed Gracie's eyes to Miss Arley, who quickly snapped her attention back to the pot roast she was tending. Start listening to One Blood by Janine Milner now, wherever audiobooks are sold. Hello and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer, Laura Zaro-Kopinski. And today, Catherine Marsh is here to discuss The Lost Year, an incredibly timely, page-turning middle-grade novel that traces a harrowing family secret back to the Holodomor, a terrible famine that devastated Soviet Ukraine in the 1930s. Newbery Honor-winning author Vera Haranandani says Catherine Marsh has beautifully woven a gripping tale covering both the Stalin-orchestrated Ukraine famine in 1932 and the beginning of the pandemic in 2020. Marsh shows how deeply connected we are to our past and that in the middle of a societal crisis where disinformation is rampant, the ultimate truth can be found in the relationships we hold dear. It will break your heart and put it back together again. A must read, especially for these times. I definitely agree. Catherine Marsh is the Edgar-winning author of The Night Tourist, Nowhere Boy, The Twilight Prisoner, Jep, Who Defied the Stars, The Doors by the Staircase, and The Last Year. She grew up in New York and now lives in Washington, D.C. with her husband and two children. Catherine, thanks for being here, and congratulations on The Last Year. I thought this was just such a timely, thought-provoking read, and I'm looking forward to talking about it. Well, thank you so much for having me. I read a little bit that the book um, had some inspiration from your own family history. So I would really like to hear about that and kind of just how this book um, started for you. Absolutely. So I grew up um, in the home of my Ukrainian grandmother. We moved in with her when I was uh, almost five years old. Um, And uh, her house was in Yonkers, New York. Um, And I'm an only child. So she became a second mother to me. And I spent a lot of time in her room because she had the biggest TV and the most (laughs) contraband candy, which I enjoyed. But she gave it to me all the time. Um, But she was also a wonderful storyteller. And she had come from Ukraine um, when she was about 21 years old in 1928. And she was just such a vivid... uh, storyteller about her life there. And so I grew up knowing as um, a child about this famine. And she had left Ukraine um, by the time the Holodomor started, which was in uh, 1932-33. However, she had left behind her two sisters and a brother. Um, So she was really worried about them during that time. Um, And, you know, one of her cousins actually came to America in 1933, was able to get into the country and had experienced the famine firsthand. And she used to tell stories about how in the winter, the village where my grandmother and she were from, uh, there would be absolute silence that winter of the famine because 
people had eaten all the dogs and cats and animals. And I always thought that was a very chilling story. And I was surprised that no one else seemed to know about this. When I used to mention it, um, most Americans had no idea that this famine, which killed um, millions, millions of Ukrainians, the estimates run from 4 million on up, um, had happened. And so I decided in 2019 that I wanted to write a book um, about a uh, family that had a similar, some similar history to my own, um, and the experience of three cousins, um, who uh, one of whom was an immigrant, um, like my mother was born in uh, in Brooklyn but had a Ukrainian parent, um, and two other cousins who were in Ukraine during that time but in very different circles, and that um that became the lost year um and i sat down to start writing it and then of course in 2020 the the covid pandemic started and i ended up at home with my two um school age kids and um that was a very you know disruptive challenging time for everyone and i ended up sort of writing that into the story as well as a framework for the historical story. Um, and so The Lost Year is about a 13-year-old boy, Matthew, who's stuck at home um, in the beginning of COVID, not going to school, um, feeling very you know, lonely and depressed. And his great-grandmother is moved in, and she is from Ukraine. And he helps her do some unpacking and discovers a photo of two girls. Um, and when he shows it to her, she just freaks out, starts crying, gets really upset. And he realizes that there's a story there. And that becomes the historical tale. We go back in time to the 1930s and to Ukraine and Brooklyn. So that's how it started. Yep. Yeah. And I, I have to admit too, I really did not know about this famine before reading the book, which I think is, um, a reason why historical novels can be so powerful, like shining a light on different periods of history. But can you give us some um, some more information for people who aren't familiar with sort of what the political um, context was like in Ukraine at the time, about the famine itself, and, and kind of what it meant for the ordinary people there, just some more of the kind of historical context? Absolutely. Um, so Ukraine at that point, point in time was part of the Soviet Union. Um, we often refer to it now as Soviet Ukraine. Um, and Stalin was the leader. Joseph Stalin was the leader of the Soviet Union at that point in time. Um, Stalin really uh, had a lot of concerns about um, Ukraine uh, wanting independence. Um, and he was the one who collectivized, which was basically, to explain what that is, it means that in Ukraine is the breadbasket of that area. And that's a really important fact because it's where a lot of grain is, you know, grown. There are a lot of farms and the farmers there tended historically to be more independent um, than some other, some of the other people who were in Russia in less um, agricultural land. So they had um, a number of private farms and Stalin decided at that point that the state should be running these farms. So he took that land away from the Ukrainian farmers. Um, also to, um, you know, not only because this fit the communist ideal, but because 
he also did not want them to be too independent. Um, and so collectivization is really the prelude to what happened in the famine, because at that point, um, Stalin decided to start raising the quotas for grain of how much grain that these state farms should give to the state. Um, and he raised those quotas to such a level that people in the countryside um, who were working at the farms uh, had nothing left for themselves. He took away that grain. A lot of it was shipped off to Russia um, and particularly to factories that he was building to try to industrialize the Soviet Union. Um, and so this famine primarily affected people who were in the countryside and specifically these farmers who uh, farmers who were landowning farmers were known as kulaks during this time. Um, and he really villainized them. Um, there was a campaign against them that they were greedy, that they were bad. Um, and in that way, was able to sort of create the conditions where, um, you know, communist true believers would go into these farms and starve people. Um, and so I have in my book two characters who are in Ukraine, one who is in the countryside, Nadia, who grows up in a village and experiences this hunger and starvation. Um, and I also have a character, Mila, who grows up in Kiev and is the daughter of a communist Ukrainian Communist Party official um, who believes the propaganda. And when this, the other important piece of information here is that when this famine happened, um, Stalin denied it was happening. He said it was fake news if anybody heard about it. And he denied it was happening. And he told the um, a number of Western journalists that it wasn't happening. And it created a real um, real disinformation. And I know we talk about that term a lot today um, with kids and in, in terms of media literacy, but I also have a background as a journalist and I was really interested in showing this particular historical episode um, as a historical example of disinformation that really shaped history because, because of this suppression, because of these kind of false news reports that people were not starving, um, it really did this is the reason why so many people don't know that this happened at all. And I thought it was so interesting. I don't think it's giving away too much to say that there's a, there's scenes where one of the characters is kind of tr trying to explain to newspapers that they've got the story wrong, that, that she's hearing and people in her community are hearing through letters that um, this famine is happening. And I would imagine that, that those are incidents that, probably really happened. Could you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So what's so interesting about this is while, you know, the, the Western news and particularly there's a guy named Walter Durante at the New York Times who was reporting that people were hungry but not starving. Um, there were people in the Ukrainian community um, who were getting letters in, in North America from family members who were saying quite the opposite, that they were starving. Um, and a lot of these letters were actually allowed to go out of the Soviet Union without being censored because um, the Soviet government wanted to encourage relatives to give hard currency to, to um, their families back in Ukraine that the state would then take um, and use themselves um, and give maybe the family a little bit of bread for that. Um, so this is a, a, an occasion where, you know, I thought it was very interesting in this time when we're uncovering so many lost histories and so many marginalized histories um, to look at this as an example of that and the way in which oral history, because so much of the, you know, the records either never existed or were destroyed um, documenting this, a lot of it actually 
what we know about the Holodomor comes from oral history and from the stories of people who survived it. Um, so one of my characters who is, you know, herself Ukrainian American, um, she is somebody who hears about this from the community and from letters um, and then, you know, decides to really challenge what she's hearing um, from, you know, the New York Times in her class. And I felt that that was something that I, you know, is not only historically accurate, but is an example of something that I think we're doing more and more today as we look at history and, and look at all of the who tells stories um, and how they often get told by the powerful. Um, but we need to question that. Well, one of the other things I thought was interesting, unfortunately, we're seeing even more parallels to the past um, with the war in Ukraine. And I, I think I read that um, kind of as war was breaking out, you were maybe in like the copy editing yes. stage. And I'm not sure how much that wound up working its way um, into how you were writing the book at all, but that there was also um, kind of very close to home instances where the cover artist for the book was um, in Ukraine at the time. Could you talk a little bit about kind of how current events made their way into like the publishing process? Absolutely. So, you know, as I mentioned, I started this book in the end of 2019 um, and, you know, actually have uh, still keep in touch with uh, some of my grandmother's family in Ukraine and had, had actually had them, uh, help me with some of the research for this um, and share some of their their stories that they had heard from from you know some of my grandma's relatives um, and we I felt very strongly that I would wanted to have a Ukrainian artist uh, do the cover for the book and we found a wonderful artist young very talented artist um, from the city of Kharkiv which is very far it's quite far in the east and if you've been following the news you know that it it's one of the cities that has been heavily bombarded. So in February of 2022, um, when the uh, when Moscow's, you know, uh, the Kremlin's big large scale invasion of Ukraine began, I was in copy edits, as you mentioned, um, and Maria Skliarova, the artist, was um, just had gotten the assignment and was starting to do sketches for the cover. Um, she had to uh, flee Kharkiv and go west. Um, and so the cover was really designed uh, designed during kind of this moment of being in a war zone. Um, and I, at that point, um, was able to update my author's note, which is a really important part of this book. And I highly recommend that everyone reads it because it gives both my family history um, and some of more about the historical uh, context of this. Um, but I was also able to sort of, you know, make some of the parallels between what happened then and what happened now. Um, and chief among those, um, you know, there, there are a bunch of them. One is the use of disinformation and propaganda, um, particularly by, by Russia. Um, and secondly, is obviously the politicization of food because Ukrainian grain is, um, you know, is something that the Kremlin has tried to control once again. Um, and then also, you know, one of the things that the lost year is about is how children are um, affected by, you know, propaganda, particularly in an authoritarian state. Um, and, you know, that is again occurring, um, including the abuse of children. And so that was something that I wanted to, you know, 
to draw some of those parallels in the author's note. Um, I think anyone who reads the story today will see and, and make their own kind of um, parallels because there are there are certainly ones between what's happening and the way Russia is treating Ukraine now and the way the Kremlin treated uh, Ukraine back during the whole of the war period as well. There's so many parallels and I it, it's making me think, I feel like the last year would be such a powerful, like all classroom read in schools or like for a parent-child book club, that sort of thing. I could just imagine this really bringing both current events and history to life for kids. And I guess I wonder, I know the book has only come out recently, but have you gotten to talk to um, many kids or teachers yet about the book? And what kinds of reactions are you getting? Oh my gosh, I have had such a an interesting and fascinating tour because when I wrote the book, I was concerned that kids wouldn't even know where Ukraine was or what Ukraine was or any of that. And then I got to classrooms in, in late January to talk about the book and every single school I visited, and that includes like rural schools and urban schools and different areas of the country, all the kids knew what Ukraine was because of the war. They knew about the country. They could identify the flag. Um, and they also knew that there was a war going on. So in that sense, um, you know, it was an opportunity to kind of fill in some of the gaps in, in history that kids have that would help them sort of contextualize what's going on today. Um, I have definitely had a lot of um, kids and adults reading this together. Um, I, I recommend that. Um, you know, for me, we've been talking a lot about some of the substance of the book, but one of the things that I felt was very important writing this is it's essentially a mystery. And for young readers who, you know, I don't always talk about the, the, the vegetables of kind of, you know, let's talk about the issues in history. I think that there are, all of that is in there for the taking, but there's also a sort of more fundamental mystery story where Matthew has to figure out what this kind of family secret is that his great grandmother has been keeping to herself for, you know, 90, almost 90 years. Um, and I often challenge kids to race him um, to see if they can sort of beat Matthew to figure out what's going on. Because, you know, I, we're not going to spoil anything, but the, the story is one with a twist. Um, and, a very perceptive reader might start to catch on to that. So that's always my challenge for young readers so that this book is both sort of vegetables and something that's more like, you know, ice cream, something that's more fun where you can follow a mystery. Yeah, it could definitely be both. It's such a great read. And I think, thank it's, you. Um, yeah, I, I could see kids really just being absorbed in this story and, but it leads to so many interesting questions that I think are, are going to be really powerful. And I could just imagine really fascinating discussions between kids and teachers, kids and adults. It's such a great vehicle for that. Um, so Thank I hope you. that, yeah, I hope that any teachers who are listening, parents who uh, have like middle grade age kids would, would really do well to pick it up for plans for, you know, the fall in school or, or at home as well. Well, I would like to hear too about kind of what your process was like for kind of taking this research that you've done and blending fact with fiction a little bit. What was the process like for researching and writing and trying to give yourself room to create this fictional story, but also trying to be true to the, the facts as well? 
That's a great question. Um, you know, I would say, I mean, I did a lot of research for this book. Um, you know, part, some of it was family research. Um, much of it was also just reading a lot of the academic books that have written, been written on the subject. Um, I had three um, professors of, of Soviet era history, um, including one who is Ukrainian, uh, read through the manuscript. Um, and I just, I, I love so much, um, you know, digging into some of those wonderful historical details. But I also think there's a great challenge in writing historical fiction and that you can't get too, um, you know, you're, you're always telling a story. Um, and so while you have to use, you know, and, and I wanted to use a lot of the true, you know, historical details, I never wanted those to get in the way of a narrative. It's really important for me to be telling a story. And I think that's sometimes with historical fiction writers get so wrapped up and in love with the research that they forget that you might not be as interested as, as they are in some small detail. Um, so, you know, for me, it's always very character driven. Um, I had a lot to work on, though, work from just in terms of, you know, my grandmother and her experience in a small village in Ukraine informed a lot. Um, my mother growing up in East New York, Brooklyn, with a Ukrainian parent and a parent from Belarus. Um, so we came from sort of that mixed background on my mother's side um, was something that informed the story of uh, of the, the cousin who lives in Brooklyn. And then when I was a young person, I studied uh, Russian, went to the Soviet Union and spent some time at a communist youth camp as a peace exchange camper. That's I'm dating oh, wow. myself. Yeah, <laughs> I'm dating myself at the very end of the Soviet Union. But I got to see a little bit of what that life was like. And so that was also something that informed this story. Um, but one of the things someone said to me, which I just absolutely loved, was that this book was like a kind of masterclass in narrative. And that's really, you know, combining all of that research, you know, these oral histories that I read, the books, the family stories, you know, re other research um, with with kind of just making sure that I was creating a story that wove together, you know, these different times that kind of thematically, you know, developed, um, you know, that made people want to turn pages. Those were all of the things I was trying to do. And the book in itself, and this is a little meta, but <laughs> is also about writing and about how to be a writer. And that's something, again, that's sort of in there for the taking. It's, it's you know, Matthew decides, and this is not giving anything major away, but when he learns this secret, he decides that he's going to kind of write the story. But writing is really hard for him. And I love when I go to schools talking to kids who actually don't like writing um, and who don't want to be writers, because I think that we often um, present writing as something that you're either good at or you're not good at. And Matthew is would say that he was not good at writing. But there, there, it's really, you know, Matthew's father's a journalist, and they have a couple conversations about this. And what comes out is that, you know, writing is about revision, which is something I always strongly tell kids. Writing is about caring. Um, it's about caring, you know, maybe not having like, you know, your first drafts and my first drafts are awful. <laughs> and, and oftentimes, you know, they have to go through a lot of revision, but it's caring about getting to a place where I feel like my characters come alive that matters um, and that perseverance. 
Um, and then I just talk a lot too about thinking about narrative in ways other than the written word. And I think that's really important for this generation of kids to think in terms of visual images, to think in terms of video games, to think in terms of movies, all the different ways in which stories are told um, and how you can use that to kind of model your own kind of stories from as well. I think that's so powerful. There's just so much to unpack with this book and so many directions conversations can go. And um, I'm just, it's just such a rich um, book for kids and for adults to be reading too. Well, just one of the last things I want to ask, you know, I'm curious if you read a lot of uh, middle grade books yourself, if you read historical fiction, kind of what's your reading life like? And along with that, are there any books you'd want to recommend to listeners? Absolutely. So one of my favorite recent books was Amber and Clay. I'm a huge fan of Laura Amy Schlitz. I think her, her, uh, you know, books for children are very original. Um, and that's like huge praise <laughs> for me. I find them very unusual um, and really crafted. Um, and so I really enjoyed Amber and Clay, um, which is a story of, of two kids back in, uh, in, you know, and sort of, also the evolution of um, philosophy um, and gets into sort of, you know, just what that is. Um, and it's just, it's just a wonderful story. Um, so Amber and Clay, I highly recommend, but I read across genres. And um, while I do read, I do read middle grade. Um, I also enjoy historical fiction. I enjoy, enjoy adult fiction. And I really like, um, some mystery writing as well. Um, and, you know, the last book I read was uh, the new Dennis Lane book, actually, Small Mercies, which I thought was a really um, wonderful sociological portrait of, um, of Boston and race relations in the 70s. Um, and I read nonfiction, too. So I kind of read all over the place. And that's often what I, I tell kids to do, too, is to kind of follow your passions. And, um, and read broadly. Um, and I feel very strongly that that's, that that's important to just sort of, you know, just the same way you have a diet, um, you know, you should eat all your different food groups, that you should read all your different, you know, book groups. Yeah. Oh, I so agree with that. And that's such great advice. And to be sharing that with kids too, I think is really just a powerful, powerful bit of advice. Well, Thanks. Catherine, I, um, I just thought this was such an incredible book. I really hope that any teachers, parents, librarians run out and get it um, for their classrooms, for their libraries, for their home bookshelves. It's such an important read and I just really enjoy getting to chat with you. So thank you for being here and um, I really appreciate you um, sharing so much about the book and about all the um, history behind it. Well, thank you for having me. It was such a pleasure to talk. For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review wherever you get your podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.